Our reading is from uh, Colossians chapter 1, beginning to read at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of your love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who once were alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became minister. This is the word of God. Well, I count it a privilege to have been asked to give the 2008 Lloyd-Jones lecture at the John Owen Centre here. The particular subject given me is one, I'm sure, that would have particularly interested the doctor. He was very insistent that people should appreciate that the gospel was much grander, fuller, and more comprehensive than the simple belief that Christians go to heaven when they die. Wonderful, though, that is in itself. The gospel is a message of salvation that takes in the whole of creation. Lloyd-Jones deals with it at some length in his exposition of Romans chapter 8, as well as in sermons on Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. Gospel preaching 
is set within the context of all that God has revealed in the Bible concerning creation. It's a message presented to created beings whose opposition to their creator has resulted in denunciation, disruption, decreation, and destruction. And, through the incarnate Son of God, it offers hope of redemption, restoration, resurrection, and recreation. At the same time, it does not undervalue, dismiss, or rubbish the present created order, but encourages a responsible attitude toward it. Tonight we shall first consider what a theology of creation will include, then show how the one who lies at the heart of the gospel is also central to creation theology, and finally we shall consider the importance of a theology of creation for gospel preaching and our response to that theology. Well, tell you that, that's my intention. We'll see how we get on. A theology of creation. For obvious and commendable reasons, we can get so involved with responding to people like Darwin and Dawkins that a positive creation theology is often hidden from view or never clearly presented. When the Bible considers creation, Though it often contains a polemical thrust, the overall impression left is to amaze the reader at the wonder of God's creation. For instance, Genesis 1, written against the background of ancient myths concerning the origin of the world, is a grand and powerful statement impressing upon us the greatness of God. Walter Brueggemann comments concerning Genesis 1, we must listen to the text, but it does not stay in our ears. It leaps to our lips. The proclamation becomes a doxology. Job, on the other hand, is so overwhelmed that he is first reduced to silence and then humbled to the dust with a repentant spirit after his tour of creation in the company of the Lord. The doctrine of creation is fundamental to the Christian faith and impinges on many other elements of Christian theology. It has to do with protology and eschatology and includes the biblical teaching concerning God, humanity, and the person and work of Christ and the Spirit. It is, of course, by faith that we confess God's existence and understand God's creative activities. Hebrews 11, 3 and 6 remind us. That faith, of course, is informed by and grounded on the truth of God's revelation in Scripture, and not on the views of philosophers or scientists. A biblical theology of creation includes many items of belief. Now, I have twelve to present to you this evening. A biblical theology of creation will include the belief that, first of all, there is an uncreated creator God. We start there. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you ever had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90, verse 2. Dawkins, in his attempt to show that there is no God, uses as his main argument the question he probably first asked 
in the innocence of childhood. And who made God? The way he expresses it now, of course, is who designed the designer? The obvious and only answer is no one. God was not made. God did not evolve. God did not come from anywhere. He has always been. God is the uncreated creator. The fact of God is naturally offensive to humans who love to think that they are autonomous and accountable to no one. But like it or not, God is the one great reality. Secondly, the creator God created creation. Creation is the other aspect to reality. First there is God, and then there is everything else. The first verse of Genesis is not simply the introduction to Genesis and to chapter 1, but a comprehensive statement implying that everything owes its existence to God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heaven and earth is a way of referring to everything. The invisible world as well as the visible is the creation of God. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them. Nehemiah 9, verse 6. The author of Hebrews declares that every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. This is divine work. Only God can create in the ultimate sense. This is what distinguishes God from false gods. As Jeremiah, Jeremiah reminded the people, the God of Jacob is not like worthless idols, for he is the one who formed all things. Against the ancient Near Eastern world's prevailing beliefs, Genesis 1 announces that all is God's creation. Thirdly, this creator called into being one creation. However many solar systems there are, However many heavens, there is one creation. The idea that there may be many universes is postmodern speculative nonsense. After preaching that science is about what we can observe, Dawkins writes as if he believes in universes where he's already dead or ones where he has a green moustache. Displeasing and unpalatable as the word is to some, universe means the one whole mass of all that exists, wherever it exists. There is no double creation either, as indicated by some early Christian leaders, influenced as they were by Platonic ideas. Augustine, for instance, held that the material world was less real and important than the spiritual the view that an eternal, immaterial world of ideas was first created, and then a material world created in imitation of the timeless, immaterial one, is quite contrary to Scripture. All dualistic notions, with their tendency to undervalue and treat less favorably this material, physical world, are not to be countenanced. Fourthly, the uncreated God created all things 
from nothing. Ex nihil. We've heard that a few times today. Nothing means that nothing must not be defined or else we will be in danger of making it into something. To say that God created out of nothing is to affirm that he did not create with any pre-existing material. There was no stuff or space that he found already there. It is not explicitly stated in the Bible that God created from nothing, but that is the implication. There are translations of Genesis 1, 1 to 3 that suggest there was an existing chaos before God created. But certainly ancient opinion and the surrounding verses give no support to such an interpretation. The Hebrew word for to create, while it is used for what is new and wonderful, does not by itself mean to make out of nothing. And certainly the first two chapters of Genesis show how God did, for instance, create humans. The word create is used, using uh, pre-existing material. But Genesis 1 strongly suggests that the initial material out of which he formed humans and everything else was literally created out of nothing. In this way, he created the light. It was not created out of something else. This teaching of creation ex nihilo is considered to be one of the most momentous developments in all the history of thought. If God created ex nihilo, it follows that the universe is not infinite. Materialism, with its idea that matter and space are eternal and indestructible, is ruled out. This truth also means that God did not create from his own being. The creation is by God, but it is not made from God himself. Creation is not part of God. It was not taken from God. Creation is not an emanation from God. In other words, matter is not deified. On the other hand, this does not mean that the creation has an independent existence. The creation is not independent of God. It is distinct from God, has an existence of its own, but it is totally dependent on God. The corollary of this teaching is that all ancient and modern pantheistic notions are to be rejected where God and the universe are either strictly identical or the universe is part of God. There is a fundamental distinction between the creator and the creation. In recent decades, it's not been uncommon for reference to be made in serious articles to Mother Nature or Mother Earth in capital letters. The Greek earth goddess Gaia has become fashionable in some quarters and made respectable through the philosophizing of certain scientists working in the field of subatomic physics and microbiology. Against all such ideas is the biblical doctrine of creation where God 
is the source of all that there is, and all that is, is separate from God the Creator and dependent on Him. Fifth point in my creation theology. The Creator created time. In the beginning, God created. There was a beginning. God is the Alpha and Omega. There was a beginning to all things as surely as there will be an end or consummation of all things. Life is not going round in endless circles. There is a linear movement that starts from a beginning. God not only created time, but he created with time and in time. As we see from Genesis 1, the creation was progressive. God took time to bring the earth to a condition where animals and humans could live comfortably. God also created the days with their evenings and mornings and in so doing initiated the fundamental rhythm of human life. Blosher has pointed out that technology has often undermined this divine pattern to the detriment of humanity. He also indicates how a life of sin frequently abolishes the divine pattern as it dissolves the difference between day and night, between light and darkness. Six point. Creation is good. At the close of each stage of God's formation of the earth, God took pleasure in what he had made. God saw that it was good. With the seventh occurrence of the word good, when all was completed on day six, the adverb very is added. God was delighted and profoundly satisfied with the completed action. It means that matter is not evil. The Apostle Paul denounced a false asceticism that forbade marriage and abstinence from foods and reminded Timothy that God created everything good. 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. to Seven point. The Creator God owns and rules over the whole creation. The Lord said to Job, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. He is as much the creator and ruler of the sun, moon, and stars as he is of humans and animals. Satan, too, is a creature subject to God, as we see in Job 1 and 2, for instance. No one is above him or equal to him. No one and nothing are outside of God's control. Dualism and polytheism are non-starters. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations the Lord reigns. 1 Chronicles 16.31 Eighth point. Creation is the work of the triune God. Herman Bavinck, in his Reformed Dogmatics, considered the doctrine of the Trinity to be of the greatest importance for the doctrine of creation. Scripture reveals that God the Father created all things through the Son and the Spirit. 
The New Testament makes clear what is latent in the Old. That there is a plurality in God is suggested by God's deliberation with himself in the creation of the first human couple. Let us make man in our image. There is no indication that God used the angels as instruments in creating humans. The Old Testament emphasis is on the one God who created all things, while the New Testament draws our attention to the person within the Godhead most closely involved in the work. God created all things through the Son. This Son is not a created being through whom God made the world. The prologue to John's Gospel, so reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, declares, In the beginning was the Word. This Word, Logos, who was with God and was God, and who is identified as the only begotten Son, he is the one who created all things. John does not see the Logos as a created being through whom God made the world, or as an intermediate being linking God and creation. Similarly, the Apostle Paul, in a creed-like statement, confesses one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Arianism, Unitarianism, and their more popular modern variants are to be rejected outright. We can also state that creation itself presupposes a triune God. This insight has recently been emphasized by the late Colin Gunton of King's College London. But it was articulated most superbly almost a century ago by Herman Bavinck, who argued that just as God is one in essence and distinct in persons, so also the work of creation is one and undivided, while in its unity it is still rich in diversity. Creation reveals the glory of the triune God. Though we cannot speak of proofs of the Trinity from the created world, yet the more scientists study the creation with its remarkable diversity and unity and unity and diversity, the more it speaks to us of the triune God who created such an amazing world. How different this is to Islam's God, who is a unitary being, where diversity is lost in uniformity. Colin Gunton has used the doctrine of creation as a triune act to counter postmodernist thinking in the area of culture and society. He comments that postmodernism is modernism come home to roost, where the individual mind and will has produced a fragmentation that threatens the health of culture and social order. It is the doctrine of creation as the act of the triune God that enables us to appreciate the importance of viewing society as both one and many, unified and diverse, as particular and yet in relation. The same applies when we think of the church, one body, many members. It is important that Christians express, where biblically possible, this unity and diversity and refrain from succumbing to the individualism that characterizes so much of modern Western society. 
The doctrine of creation as a triune act reminds us that God does not need the creation. He is complete in himself with a life of his own as Father, Son, and Spirit. On the other hand, the creation suggests a close connection with God's eternal activity and intercommunication. The self-communication and productivity within the Godhead becomes a model for God's work in and communication with creation. This teaching that creation is the act of the triune God does add something to our view of what moved God to create in the first place. Creation derives ultimately, of course, from God's will to create. Revelation 4.11, you have created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The scriptures would also point us to God's glory being the ultimate goal of creation. While the heavens declare God's glory, and humans were created for his glory, Psalm 19 and Isaiah 43, Paul can add, from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever, Romans 11.36. This does not make God self-centered and self-seeking in the way that this is true of humans. As there is nothing and no one greater than God, who is the supreme and most complete being, there is no one greater to worship, and therefore his honor is the ultimate end for which everything was created. But we can also say that creation derives not simply from God's will and power, but from his love. Though God did not need the creation, it was nevertheless the outcome of God's unconstrained love. Further, in seeking his own glorification in the things he has made, the love within the Holy Trinity flows freely to the objects of his love that he has created. This leads us to a further element in creation theology. Point number nine. The creator God is relational. God made humans, male and female, in his own image, as we are told in uh, Genesis 1. While human beings are not gods, there is something about us that makes us godlike. While all creation bears witness to God, humans express God and represent God in a unique way. The difference between humans and other living creatures is emphasized by the phrases, according to our likeness and in his own image, which replace the according to its kind with reference to the other living creatures in Genesis 1. Human beings are not broken down into types and species. The only breakdown is in terms of sexuality, male and female. Together and separately, the man and the woman are like God. They reflect the unity and community of the triune God. We find that the God who consults with himself in the creation of humans immediately addresses personally these beings that he has made. God who already had personal relationships within his own being made humans that such fellowship might be extended to them. Humans represent a God who is relational. God 
is love. From all eternity past, love existed in God. This was so because he is a trinity of persons. That same love between the persons of the Trinity is now exercised toward his created image bearers. Communion and communication are inherent in God's very being, as Bob Latham points out. And in creating the world, he has made human beings for himself and for interpersonal relationships. Such truth is important when reaching Muslims with the gospel. Islam's doctrine of God is deficient in that it has no way of explaining personal relationships. For them, God is not a relational being. Love cannot exist in Islam's God. For as uh, Bob Latham says again, a monod cannot love. Point number ten. There is the creator and there is the creation and that is all. Now, this is implied in what I've already said, but it needs to be emphasized. Nothing else exists but the Creator and His creation. There are no other beings who have created other worlds and other universes. Neither are there intermediaries between God and creation. The early church leader, Irenaeus, counteracted the Gnostic and Hellenistic ideas of intermediaries between God and the world by his Trinitarian theology. He speaks, as we heard this afternoon, of God creating by his two hands, the Son and the Spirit. Thus God is free and sovereign and does not require other beings to achieve his ends. God himself creates because his two hands are God. It is the Son and the Spirit who mediate between the divine and the created. There are no degrees of being but these two realities, God and everything he has made. It's important in our fragmented world to realize that there is this fundamental unity. Eleventh point. Creation must be distinguished from providence. The term providence is used to summarize uh, God's ongoing relation to his creation as Wayne Grudem puts it. Though creation and providence are inseparable, God's preserving work needs to be distinguished from that of creation. The seventh day announced that God had completed his creative activity by the end of day six. God's resting indicates that the work of creating and fashioning was over. What follows is the work of upholding, preserving, and renewing what has been created. The creation has no existence in itself. It exists only in, through, and to the God who made it. Nehemiah 9.6 You are God. You preserve all. Psalm 104.30 You renew the face of the ground. Like creation, God's providence involves the three persons of the Trinity. The Father continues to operate with his two hands, the Son and the Spirit. Though creation is distinct from him, God is actively involved in creation at every point and at all times. In him we live and move and have our being. He is not a God of the gaps, 
God is involved in the realms people think they understand as well as in those they cannot understand. God is not the God of the deists either, who believe that God in effect abandoned the world that he had made. God is not like the watchmaker who winds the clock and leaves it tick on its own. Nothing is outside the providential activity of God. The doctrine of God's providence also means that world events are not determined by chance or by impersonal fatalistic forces. God's providence is all-embracing, for it takes us from the original creation to the new creation. This leads us to the final point in this review of creation theology. Point number 12, there is need for a new creation. The original creation, though good and exactly as God intended, was not its ultimate state in God's plan. The final form is the glorified state for which the original creation perfection was a preparation. The original condition of integrity was with a view to the final state of glory. That ultimate goal is suggested by Moses in his treatment of the seventh day. No mention is made of the closing of this day of rest. The evening and the morning refrain, which completes the other six days, is absent from the final day. The cosmic Sabbath, as Bavink describes it, is the end to which the initial creation points. In theory, if sin had not entered, that final state would have arrived without the need of God's saving intervention. Because of the fall, that ultimate glorious state, the eternal Sabbath rest, can only be achieved through God's redemptive activity. It was, however, according to God's eternal purpose, and in order that more honor might be brought to him, that God ordained the redemptive history before creation began. A new creation is now needed because of the initial apostasy that brought ruin and unhappiness to the original creation. Creation itself has been subjected to God's curse resulting from human rebellion. It is for this reason that creation's destiny is spoken of as a new creation, rather than simply creation glorified. The present creation has been subjected to futility by God. It is in bondage to decay. Creation can't stop this process of corruption and death. Ecclesiastes is a powerful testimony to this truth. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. It is not Monday morning blues that accounts for this depressing conclusion. There is an objective vanity about life in this world which affects Christians as well as non-Christians. Change and decay in all the world, in all around I see. But this new creation must not be thought of as a replacement for the original one that God was unable to manage. The new creation is the end, the goal of the old. It completes the purpose of the original. Humanity is bound up with the rest of creation in that destiny. We note how Genesis moves immediately from the creation of the universe to the formation of the earth and finally the creation of humans. As Baving puts it, the world, the earth, humanity 
are one organic whole. They stand, they fall, they are raised up together. When Adam fell, the whole creation was affected adversely. Through the activity of the second Adam, the whole of creation reaches its destiny. The ultimate goal is that state of glory, says Bavink, in which God will impart his glory to all his creatures and be all in all. It is therefore to the gospel that we must now turn to show how the creation reaches the end for which God originally planned and purposed. So the message of the gospel. Central to the significance of creation theology for preaching is the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, the doctrine of creation prepares for the saving work of Christ and the new creation. Unlike the teaching of the Gnostics, the scriptures reveal that the God of creation is not a different God from the God of salvation. Creation language is used when describing God's saving work in bringing Israel out of Egypt, in the return of the Jewish exiles from Babylon, and in the greater exodus that is associated with Christ. In the Genesis creative narrative, as John Frame observes, Moses either reflects or anticipates God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. The deliverance from Egypt is then used typologically by Isaiah and others for the greater deliverance from sin and Satan accomplished by Christ. Paul likewise treats redemption using both creation and Exodus language. Paul describes the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Romans 1.16 This salvation cannot be separated from the doctrine of creation. Salvation is the comprehensive term that covers the entire field of God's purposes for his creation since the fall. Redemption has reference to the means by which that salvation is achieved. The Old Testament concept of salvation is very concrete and regularly denotes more than spiritual blessings. Negatively, it includes the healing of diseases, deliverance from enemies and death, while positively it refers to a general state of well-being. Paul is the great exponent of salvation in the New Testament. It is from him both, it is for him uh, both uh, a present possession and a future hope. Christians have already passed from death to life. They are regenerate, redeemed from the bondage and rule of Satan and sin, and are new creations in Christ. But it is the eschatological aspect that predominates in Paul's writings. In uh, the Christian's present enjoyment of salvation is characterized by hope. The Spirit is both the beginning and the guarantee of the promised glorious future. Christians rejoice unashamedly in hope on account of the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. They are not only saved from sin and hell, but for righteousness and glory. This salvation, however, is not to be seen in purely spiritual terms. The future state has been too often thought to comprise of some otherworldly, non-physical state of bliss. But Paul's doctrine of salvation has reference to the creation as a whole. It goes beyond the individual, beyond even the church. It embraces the entire creation. In Romans 8, 22, 21, 
Paul sees the whole creation experiencing a great exodus. This exodus will take place in the context of the ultimate salvation of mankind, when the true nature and status of the redeemed sinner will be obvious to all and will include the resurrection of the body. The biblical doctrine of creation means that individual salvation is not deliverance from the creation, but in it and with it. Ultimate salvation for Paul means a very down-to-earth situation where the deliverance and transformation of all creation includes the redemption of our whole selves. We shall be transformed not by release from the physical, in Greek, Gnostic, Hindu, or Buddhist fashion, but by the redemption of our bodies. This sure and certain hope is tied to the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's to him that we now turn. The centrality of Christ. Creation must not be abstracted from Christology. Jesus Christ is the agent both of creation and redemption. And all the promises and purposes of God find their yes and amen in him. We see the centrality of Christ in the following ways. First of all, Christ and creation. Jesus Christ is the one through whom there is a creation. Hebrews 1, 2, for instance. To people who were tempted to think that Jesus was not all that special, the temptation still strong today, all responds by saying that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Colossians 1.16 In the Old Testament, wisdom is personified and depicted as God's agent in creation. Colossians, however, applies this to Jesus Christ. Even sinister powers and malevolent creatures owe their existence to him and exist for his sake. Secondly, Christ and providence. Jesus Christ is the one who upholds the universe. Hebrews 1, 3. He is before all things, and to him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 17. It is Jesus, the supreme Lord over the creation, who sustains all creation and brings it to its appointed end. The book of Revelation proclaims Jesus, the Lamb of God, as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of all things. Thirdly, the incarnation of Christ. The theology of creation is important for appreciating the incarnation. Indeed, as Bavinck remarks, the incarnation, aside from its rootedness in the Trinity, also has its presupposition and preparation in the creation. Firstly, it must be noted that, like the creation itself, the original human couple were not created in that ultimate state of glory, where it would be impossible for them ever to sin or die. As Heukemer argues, the integrity in which Adam and Eve existed before the fall was not a state of consummate and unchangeable perfection. In the act of creation, therefore, and according to his eternal purpose, 
God already had in mind the coming of the Messiah. Adam's destiny was the glorified state in which God and humanity would live forever in perfect fellowship and where humans would render complete obedience to the divine will and realize the cultural mandate to fill and rule the whole earth as God's representatives in order that the whole earth might be a kind of temple filled with people bringing glory to God. Because of sin and death, that glorified state was never reached. All in Adam die. It is the last Adam, the second man, who fulfills Adam's destiny. Secondly, and in association with this first point, the creation of humans in the image of God prepares for the incarnation. Of all the creatures made by God, only humans bear his image. The image pertains to the whole of nature, the whole of human nature, body, mind, and spirit. To be human is to be created in the image of God. In this respect, human beings are not only the crown of God's creative activity, but reveal God in a fuller way than any other part of God's creation. As Babing puts it, thus man forms a unity of the material and spiritual world. That image has been damaged, of course, and disfigured by the fall, but it has not been obliterated. Humans are still human after the fall, and the scripture can refer to them as created in God's image. God created human beings in his image, primarily to rule over the earth, as we have noted, endowing them with many godlike qualities. That uh, mandate of expanding the garden temple in Eden to cover the whole earth, Adam failed to fulfill. It is the Son of God, as the last Adam, who is the true, complete, and unique image of the invisible God, the supreme revelation of God. He is the image of God, as Baving says, in an absolute sense, while the first couple were so in only a relative sense. Christ is the image of God in his deity. He's also, like Adam, the image of God in his humanity. By his resurrection, he becomes the first true spiritual human being. And all who belong to Christ will be raised to that heavenly spiritual humanity to reach the consummated state. Adam was thus the beginning, Adam was thus from the beginning a type of Christ. Adam was so appointed, says Babinka's head, that Christ could immediately take his place. It was human rebellion against God that made the incarnation inevitable. And thus the incarnation and all that that involved becomes the great demonstration of God's love. In the person of the Son, the Creator assumed the position of creature and experienced creatureliness. The Logos who was God became flesh. It is part of the essence of the gospel that the invisible God was manifest in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. He assumed flesh in order to accomplish eternal salvation, in order to bring many sons to glory. The Son of God partook of our flesh and blood nature, that he might taste death, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. 
The atoning sacrifice of Christ is the means by which the true end of creation is now attained. With Psalm 8 in mind, the writer to the Hebrew shows how Jesus fulfills the destiny of human beings because of his own suffering of death. Hebrews 2, 5-9. Thirdly, resurrection and creation, or fourthly is it? Yes, fourthly, resurrection and creation. In the creedal piece in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul moves quickly from incarnation to resurrection. The Son of God, who was seen in the flesh, was justified in the Spirit. A new bodily life, the other side of the grave, which cannot be reduced to platonic immortality, was everywhere taken for granted by the early church. While the pagan world around insisted that what mattered was the immortality of the soul, or a state of non-physical bliss, the apostles declared that matter matters. Both the incarnation and the resurrection make some reference to creation inescapable. Creation theology provides the foundation for preaching the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection. The resurrected Christ is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the last Adam. He is the life-giving spirit. He is the second man, the man from heaven. And all who belong to him will be made alive and bear his image. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. Finally, Christ and recreation. The new creation also presupposes the biblical doctrine of creation. And Jesus the Messiah is associated as much with the new as with the original creation. Christ, the faithful and true witness, is the beginning of God's new creation. Revelation 3.14 And Colossians 1.15-20 emphasizes Christ's role in creation and new creation by the use of parallel expressions. He is the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead. Everything is related to him in creation and in new creation. He is preeminent and Lord of all. The destiny of humans and of the whole creation is realized in the risen Christ through his reconciling work on the cross. Christ's resurrection has inaugurated the future hope. In Christ. The end has already happened. And yet Christians await the end with this sure and certain hope. Believers have already been raised spiritually with Christ. Sorry, believers have already been raised spiritually in Christ. But one day they will be, ra will be raised physically with bodies like our Lord's glorious resurrection body. The present bodily state of all Christians will be changed when Christ appears. Their bodies will not be the natural, earthy ones subject to decay, but heavenly and spiritual, and they will inherit the new earth and reign forever with Christ. The end is more than a return to the beginning of creation. Rather, it is the goal and glorious completion of creation. And for this, the present creation eager, is eagerly waiting. 
in calling the resurrection body a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15, 44 to 50, Paul was not suggesting that it was an immaterial one. Spiritual is not opposed to physical, but to natural. Spiritual stands for that which is in the realm of God's spirit. The natural body is, as Hoekner states, one which is part of this present sin-cursed existence. But the spiritual body of the resurrection is one which will be totally, not just partially, dominated and directed by the Holy Spirit. Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15.50 that flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God is a reference to our present bodily state that is subject to decay and death. Recreation, as Bavinck reminds us, never introduces a new substance into the world of mankind. It is with this originally created stuff, reduced, as the Apostle Peter indicates, to dust and ashes in the general fire, that God will bring about the new creation. Now I'm coming towards the end. What then is the significance of a theology of creation for preaching? Gathering together all our findings, we can see that the biblical teaching of creation occupies a central position, and its significance is, as Bavinck rightly indicates, first and foremost religious and ethical. In the light of creational theology, we preach, as Paul did to pagans, a theology that draws attention to our fundamental relationship to God. Wherever humans exist, and whatever their condition, culture, or creed, they are his creatures, and their primary allegiance is to him. Being accountable to the Creator is basic to appreciating God's position as judge of all the earth. Creation theology is particularly significant, as we've already indicated, when preaching to Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and all the New Age devotees. It's a time when a new rampant atheism is on the move in the West. It's especially worth making the point, therefore, that the alternatives to the biblical doctrine of creation are very limited. Fundamentalist atheism is helping to sustain a generation that to all intents and purposes are practical atheists who grab at any straws to suppress the truth about the creator God. Where does matter come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? If one denies the biblical doctrine of creation, then one is left with two very unsatisfactory solutions. Either that everything in this universe came from nothing, or that something was always there that has eventually produced all that presently exists. If the Creator God did not create something out of nothing, then we are left with saying that nothing produced something, or an impersonal something produced everything. It requires an enormous leap of faith to believe that from absolutely nothing 
has come into being this amazing universe. Equally unbelievable is the idea that an impersonal something, some eternal stuff of mass or energy, had within it the genetic blueprint of every living thing. We have seen that creation matters to God. And despite the fall, he has a plan for it that will not be thwarted. The creator assumed the position of creature in the person of the Son, Jesus the Messiah, in order that God's purposes might be fulfilled. Paul directed the ordinary people of Lystra and the great thinkers of Athens to the creator and sustainer of their lives, as well as to the day of judgment when God will call everyone to account through the resurrected Jesus. The storyline of the Bible runs from creation to incarnation, resurrection, and recreation. As the Bible des describes, as the Bible directs, proclaiming creation theology and contemplating the creation itself serves to impress upon everyone the stunning greatness of the triune God. Creation, said Calvin, is the mirror by which we may see God. People are without excuse. For what can be known about God, says Paul, is plain to them, because God has made it known to them. Wherever humans live and look, in wordless speech, God pours out information about himself. Psalm 19, 1-6. Everything is shouting out to us of God. Revelation of God in creation exposes the folly of worshipping the creature rather than the creator. Using the wealth of knowledge that scientists have discovered about the creation is a marvellous aid in the preaching of the gospel. Creation itself will not, however, bring people back to God. But creational theology is there to serve the gospel by breaking down initial barriers, awakening within those suppressing the truth a fresh sense of God's existence and majesty, and preparing them to hear of God's way of salvation. General revelation, as Bavinck argues, gives Christians a firm foundation on which they can meet all non-Christians. They have a common basis with non-Christians, they have a point of contact with all those who bear the name human. Working with the creation and reflecting on the creation will help us in declaring God's glory to the world, building bridges that will lead to introducing people to the greater glories revealed in the gospel. Preaching creational theology will encourage those in a right relationship with God to delight in God's creation and honour God in everything. It will make God's people more aware of the beauty of God's order, where unity does not lead to uniformity and where diversity does not produce fragmentation. The wisdom of the Old Testament encourages us to appreciate the skill of craftsmen and musicians and that all can be used to the glory of God. Solomon's wisdom involves studying the created world. We are told he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. 
He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. 1 Kings 4.33 T.M. Moore, in his book Consider the Lilies, urges Christians to be more proactive in contemplating the natural world. Those illuminated by God's special revelation in the Bible and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ are better able to appreciate the wonders of God's world and to make proper use of the powerful revelation of God in creation. Psalm 111 verse 2 Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Heaven above is softer blue, earth beneath is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue, Christless eyes have never seen. Christians are not to despise the creation, nor the creative works of humans, as they follow the designs and forms of the Creator. The low estimation of the value of the material world due to the ancient philosophers of Greece must not be allowed to colour our thinking as has often happened in the history of Christianity. Dawkins has used this view to argue that religion, by which he usually means Christianity, is aesthetically deficient, that it presents nature as ugly, and that it undermines the wonder and the mystery of the universe. But the medieval view of the universe that he criticizes has nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. John Calvin not only appreciated the wonder and order of the universe, but he encouraged scientific investigation. And that has been generally the case in Protestant Christianity. As McGrath rightly points out, it was because medieval Christians trusted the science of their day that the universe was considered more limited and lacking in the wow factor. Now, moreover, where general revelation has been denied or where there has been an inadequate creational theology, God's revelation in Scripture and in his Son, Jesus Christ, has lost its link with the created order. This has often led religious life to be detached from ordinary human existence. These present bodies of ours, however, are samples of the material creation created by God. It is through these bodies that we interact with other humans and either tend the earth and its creatures or pollute and disfigure it. As Christians, we are called to present our bodies as living sacrifices acceptable to God as our spiritual worship. All that we do in the body is important and we will be judged for what we have done in the body on the final day. Our work in this world, we are told, is not futile in the Lord. Though we feel the curse and die, we are encouraged that the dead who die in the Lord are blessed. They rest from their labours and their works follow them. Revelation 14.13 Contemplating God's creation will also strengthen faith and encourage Christians in stressful times. My help comes from the Lord who made Heaven and earth, declares the psalmist. As the Lord comforts his people, he says through Isaiah, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. It is clear 
that our Lord himself studied the creation. And in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's exhorting his disciples not to be over-anxious, he directed them to the activity of the birds in finding food and to the splendor of the wildflowers. Having Christ, Christians see the God who rules creation as none other than the one they address as Father in Christ. However, we must add that Christians are right to be somewhat ambivalent about this present creation. On the one hand, we can have a very positive attitude, knowing that nothing material is to be downgraded to unreality, semi-reality, or treated as fundamentally evil. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, Hebrews 13.4. We can receive with thanksgiving our daily food, and meat sold in the market can be eaten without asking questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. On the other hand, like Israel of old, we are sojourners and exiles on the earth. We are not to settle here as if this were all there is. The best is yet to be. The form of this world is passing away, said Paul. Because they have been raised with Christ, Christians are called to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and to set their minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we await the coming of our Saviour when he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, and, we will, and he will bring in the new creation, and the citizens of the new heavenly Jerusalem will enter the glory of that imperishable inheritance that is kept for them. The meek shall inherit the earth. Although Christians are blessed in many ways, and are to enjoy the benefits that this creation bestows. They still feel with the rest of humanity the effects of the fall, including the curse of the ground, bodily pain, illness, and death. We groan, as Paul puts it, along with all creation. However much we try to make this world a better place, or to encourage a better use of the earth's resources, we shall always be fighting a losing battle. There can be no radical improvement because of this principle of corruption, this futility which God has subjected the original creation. That does not mean we have no interest in environmental issues or other matters relating to the present creation. Even though our bodies and the rest of the creation are in bondage to decay, we are to care for the one as we care for the other. Some Christians, rightly believing that the present creation is doomed, show little enthusiasm for the concerns that presently dominate the thinking of politicians and environmentalists. However, such an attitude is not applied when thinking of their own bodies, that are also doomed to return to dust and ashes. We must treat the material world that God has created with respect, and care for it to the best of our abilities that we shall not be so obsessed in the way that is true of many pagans and humanists. An over-anxious obsession with ecology, animal rights, and the rest, writes Gunton, parallels the modern human refusal to face the fact of death. Perfection does not come from ourselves lasting forever or from attempting to make the earth eternal. End of quote. In our concern for world issues, 
for saving the planet, whether in terms of conservation measures, scientific endeavor, economic or political policies. Let us remember that the Church's message, Gospel message, Christ's message, was not the proclamation of political, economic, social, scientific programs for putting the world to rights. Politicians and such like have that responsibility and Christians can individually use their skills and involve themselves in such enterprises. The church's mission, however, is to call men and women to turn from their idols to the true and living God and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to call people to cease pinning their hopes on improvements to society and our world and to flee from the wrath to come. The Christian message not only speaks to the individual's personal need of salvation in Christ, it also speaks of Christ's atoning work as having cosmic consequences. This is where the preaching perhaps has been lacking. The gospel message includes this amazing truth that it is God's purpose to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20 Lloyd-Jones asked in his preaching on Romans, Why is this not being preached? It is an essential part of the teaching. And he quotes Jesus and Peter, who speak respectively of the regeneration that is coming, Matthew 19, and of the time for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago, Acts 3.21. So in closing, let me add that... Uh, Preaching a gospel anchored firmly in creational theology should produce the following responses from us. It should cause us to adore our maker. As believers, we should be eager to praise God. Throughout scripture, contemplating creation leads to worship. We must add, however, with Gadsby, that in his highest work, redemption, See his glory in a blaze. And this should increase our praise to bursting point. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Secondly, it should cause us to appreciate our kind and generous maker. The Lord is good to all, says Psalm 145. Meal times with family and friends provide those special opportunities to give thanks to the one from whom all blessings flow. Sight of the rainbow should also cause us to be grateful to God for keeping his promise to Noah and all creation. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, who is realistic about this present world order, nevertheless encourages us to enjoy and gratefully appreciate the good things that do come to us in this life. It should also encourage us to administer the earth's resources more wisely and lead to a balanced concern for the environment and for human and animal life, a concern in which Christians have historically often been in the forefront. It should also call to mind the ache we all possess. Besides grieving over our sins and those of others, it should remind us of the inward groan concerning the present condition of creation and our own unredeemed 
bodies. We groan inwardly along with the groan of the whole creation. It should increase, increase our anticipation of the glory to come. The assurance given by the spirit of the future hope should intensify the longing for what is to come. Finally, it should move us to action. Away with petty strife. Let us encourage one another in the gospel and urge one another to spread the message of this full-orbed salvation to people groping around in spiritual darkness and grasping at straws. May I encourage you all here tonight to be reconciled to your Maker through his Son, Jesus Christ, and to live to the glory of God and the blessing of others in anticipation of sharing in the eternal and indescribable glory that awaits all those who belong to Christ. Amen.